The reading today is from Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 18. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. The Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ether which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8 Today we've come to one of the most famous and life-giving verses in the Bible. Micah is a manifesto, a way of life, a call to action for people who live in a world where justice, mercy and humility are in short supply. Today we've come to our first minor in our Prophets Minor and Major series. There are three major prophets in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and 12 minor prophets. Micah is one of those minor prophets. Calling some prophets minor doesn't mean they're less important. It just means that they were able to write in six chapters what guys like Isaiah took 66 chapters to write. In all seriousness, the terms minor and major have nothing to do with significance and everything to do with length. The name Micah means who is like God. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one is like God. God is unmatched in greatness, power and authority. And that's why Zoe and I decided to name our firstborn Micah, who thinks he's unmatched in greatness, power and authority. When Micah was born, we were so overwhelmed by God's goodness and kindness in giving us a child that we wanted to remind ourselves of this on a regular basis. So in the Brown household, things are a little bit like this. 
Who is like God? Stop eating the toilet paper. Who is like God? Stop sharing your dinner with the dog. Who is like God? Would you please put your clothes back on and stop dancing and stop looking at your dancing shadow? Who is like God? Nobody. And this is something we learn through the prophets. Michael also has a lot to show us about parenting, God's kindness, and living a fair dinkum life. The book is a series of accusations and warnings of judgment for the kingdom of Judah. Judah's leaders have misled the people, putting money before justice, and false prophets have been telling the people, God says everything is fine, when in fact it isn't. Michael warns of judgment, but he also comforts the people, telling them God will one day shepherd them back home. Micah 6 is a courtroom drama where God brings his case before his people. Today we'll be reminded that God is a loving and gracious provider of good gifts. We'll see how people have abused God's gift and we'll hear God's call for us to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly in Jesus' footsteps. Now the word rib or contention is used three times in the opening verses of chapter 6. God has been a faithful and gracious provider, but he has a bone to pick with his people. And he's using legal and covenantal language from verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Now before there were law courts, people would bring their contention before elders, chiefs or kings, and a decision would be made. A judgment would hopefully be made that would right wrongs and restore harmony in the community. Here it's the Lord bringing his case against Israel. Now if your spiritual alarm bell is going off here, good. We're often sold a picture of a God who is placid and indifferent to the things of this world. But here it seems like God is involved in an episode of Judge Judy or Dr. Phil. Surely God is above such things we might say. But this is exactly the point Micah is making. The almighty, all-knowing, ever-living God of the Bible cares about our daily lives. God cares deeply about how we live. God cares about injustice. It's significant here that God urges the accused to plead their case before the mountains. The mountains stand as witnesses because they are as old as time itself. It's also at the foot of Mount Sinai that the people promise to obey God and follow his laws. Finally, it's at the mountains where the people build shrines and altars to false gods. On these mountains, the worst kings in the Bible sacrifice their own children, and the blood-stained rocks of the mountains now witness against the accursed. God continues his opening address in verse 3. Look with me in your Bible. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Here God reminds us of his liberating love and how he freed his people from slavery in Egypt and took them into the promised land. He reminds them of the leaders he gave them, both men and women, who guided them through the wilderness. Next we're reminded of how God turned curses into blessings in verse 5. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. If you've never heard of 
Balak. He's an evil king who sees the freed slaves from Egypt traveling towards God's promised land and pays his local wizard, Balaam, to curse them. On the way, Balaam's donkey stops. And as he's beating the donkey, it says, Oi, mate, stop beating me. There's an angel blocking my path. Balaam's eyes are open and he sees the angel who tells him off for beating his donkey and tells him there is no way he's going to curse God's people. Balaam arrives at King Balak's place and proceeds to pronounce three chapters worth of blessings upon Israel. It is an amazing story and it speaks of God's love for his people and how through history he's cared for them and provided. Then God reminds us of his blessing as the people travelled from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, aside from being very funny-sounding place names, Shittim and Gilgal are very significant in salvation history. Between Shittim and Gilgal, God parts the waters of the Jordan so his people can pass through on dry land. And when they come to Jericho, God takes down the walls of the most powerful city in the region so his people can march into the promised land. So what is God saying here? He's reminding the people of his provision and love. Time and again, he's cared for his people and protected them. Time and again, he showed them that he will never leave them or forsake them. What is God doing? He's disciplining us. One of the greatest parenting tips I've ever received is to remind your children how much you love them before you rouse on them. For me, this is helpful because it keeps my anger in check and it reminds me how much I I love my kid. But it also is helpful for Micah, my son. It reminds him that I'm not punishing him because I'm capricious or because I want revenge. I'm doing it because I love him and want to see him thrive. Before anything negative happens, I remind Micah how much he is loved. The other day, Zoe and I were with Micah in the garden and he was playing with a hammer. And he threw the hammer up and was about to catch it, probably with his face. And Zoe and I screamed, No! And fortunately, the hammer missed and went behind his head. But Micah could hear the fear in our voices and he mistook it as anger. And so he burst into tears. And for about a minute, we just sat there and hugged Micah and comforted him and reminded him how much we love him. Of course, we told him off and told him that it wasn't a good idea to throw hammers up in the air and try to catch them with your face. But we told him how much we loved him. This is what God is doing for his people. He's about to explain to them the consequences if they continue to abuse their lives. But before he does so, he reminds us of how much he loves us. What have I done to you? God asks. God has been nothing but loving, kind and supportive. Micah the prophet has some bad news to share, but it's couched in a relationship of love. Friends, let's always remember That we and all people are loved by God. The judgments and condemnations in the Old Testament are never made by a spiteful, bitter and twisted God. Instead, they come from a place of desperate, reckless love that always seeks to rescue and restore. In light of this, we're going to skip verses 6 to 8 for the moment and see how Israel has treated their gift. God's created them, freed them from slavery in Egypt and graciously brought them to a new land they can now enjoy. What have they done with this gift that they neither deserved nor earned? They've abused it. Look at verse 10. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? 
Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Israel was meant to show the world how good it is to live in relationship with God. Instead, God's people flush their promises down the toilet and abuse each other. An ether was a measure of grain, and it seems people were short-selling their neighbours in the marketplaces. Corruption, violence, and intimidation were rampant in Micah's time. And while it may have looked like God didn't care, Micah's message is, change your ways, or as you are shortchanging those around you, so you will be shortchanged. Verses 13 and 14 are as troubling as they are sobering. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but will not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. Already in Micah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel had been lost. As we've seen over this series, the prophetic books must be understood in the light of two captivities. First, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom of Israel around 740 BC, and ten tribes are lost forever. Micah lives around this time, but in the southern kingdom of Judah. The southerners may have thought that they were better than the northerners, or that they would get away with their sin. But Micah's message is there is no use lining your pockets with stolen wealth, because all of this will be taken away from you. This prophecy is fulfilled as the Babylonians invade around 600 BC and carry the people of Judah into captivity in Babylon. Micah lives between two exiles. He points to how the first exile came as a consequence for Israel's sin, and he warns of future destruction if nothing changes. Verse 16 shows us the moral crisis Judah is facing. Verse 16 You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore I will give you over to ruin, and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Omri was a very successful king in Israel, but he rejected the Lord and set up altars to other gods. Later his son, King Ahab, was famous for coveting another man's farm, so his wife Jezebel had the farmer killed and took the vineyard for her husband. This is the kind of thing that is happening in Judah in Micah's time. But it's something that's happening all around us. We see injustice on the news. We hear about it happening to the people we love. Micah's message for us is that life is a good gift from a good God. This God calls out injustice, disciplines those he loves, and will not let sin prevail. Friends, Micah's message should remind us that our lives are a precious gift. We shouldn't abuse the gifts and freedoms God has given us to take advantage of others. In all our actions, we should ask ourselves, does this honour God, and will it be a blessing to those around me? If the answer is no, then we know not to do it. But Micah also positively shows us how to live. Verses 6 to 8 read a little bit like an existential crisis. They're also an answer to, how, to the how we should live question. Here is a call from God to abundant life. Now, all people are worshippers. Sometimes media reports about religious affiliation and church attendance lead us to believe that people don't worship anything anymore. But this couldn't be further from the truth. We all worship something or someone, whether that be our jobs, our spouses, our families, or our chosen sporting code. In Bruce Marshall's novel, The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith, 
a prostitute strikes up a conversation with a Catholic priest and tells him religion is only a substitute for sex, to which Father Smith responds, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion, and the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Friends, we are all worshippers, whether we like it or not, and deep down we are all searching for meaning, for forgiveness and fulfilment. For many in Micah's day, sacrifices were a big part of the meaning of life. They would say things like, if I can offer the right sacrifices to the gods, then the gods will give me what I want. It's amazing that from the Aztecs to the ancient Chinese, almost all cultures have offered sacrifices and the Israelites were no different. In Micah, we read that they were asking themselves, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? While the people of Israel were living their wicked lives, they were also thinking of creative ways to atone for their sins and get God to bless them. I heard a story this week about the notorious Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar, who used to go to church regularly whilst controlling a cocaine empire and murdering everyone who stood in his way. I imagine his logic went a little bit like this. If I go to church and offer up sacrifices of money and time and then confess my sins at church, I can go out of church and do all the damage I like. This is exactly what is happening with people here in Micah. They say things like, as long as I make the right sacrifices, then it doesn't matter how I live. This line of thinking is alive and well today. It's part of our just do it, no pain, no gain culture. We're happy to sacrifice our time, our money, and often our relationships in order to get what we think we deserve. Whether it's the businessman who spends countless nights away from their family to get that one extra sale, or the person who starves themselves and slaves away in the gym to work for that perfect body. Too many of us are trapped in this cycle of sacrificing to gods who we hope will give us what we want. But the God of the universe is showing us a better way. In verse 8, we see how God wants us to live. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. While the world is spinning out of control, God's words in Micah cut through the noise and bring us back to the core of the gospel. God is good, and yes, we have abused his good gifts, but God has provided all the love. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was set up as a way for people not to manipulate God, but to show remorse for sin and come back to him. Unfortunately, in Micah, we see how people have twisted this system and how powerful it was to save. We, however, live on the other side of the cross. Jesus offers himself as the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Jesus gives his life for ours so that our relationship with God might be restored. And now we are free to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly in the sight of a God who loves us and offers us life in abundance. Jesus deals with our sin so we can get on with living for him practicing justice, living in a way that promotes fairness and respect for all. Whether this means not furnishing our tax returns or paying our bills when they are due or actively speaking out on behalf of marginalized and voiceless people, 
the opportunities for us to act justly on a daily basis are endless. We are to love mercy. The word for mercy here describes God's unending love for his people. If God can show us grace and God can forgive us, then when we throw his good gifts back in his face, then surely we can extend that same love to those around us. We are to forgive those who hurt us and actively love the unlovable people in our lives. Finally, we are to walk humbly with God. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. When we acknowledge God's greatness, God's goodness and God's unmatched power, when we say with Micah, who is like God? We find ourselves on the path to humility. When we elevate others above ourselves and recognize that this life isn't something we should use and abuse, all of a sudden our lives are given incredible color and hope. Micah was a minor prophet from a small town in Judah, a little bit like Dolby. But his message points us to the abundant life found in God. Micah points us to a great and kind God who loves people and keeps his promises. Micah calls out sin and injustice when we go astray and calls us back to God. Finally, Micah calls us to abundant life and living in such a way that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God our whole lives through. May this be true for us individually and as a church. Amen.